Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of History Spelunkers, the show where I take a deep dive into some niche and obscure history and tell you all about what I find. I am your host, Kelvin, use he, him pronouns, and back again with me today is my wonderful, fantastic, and curious co-host. Say hi. Hi, my name is Ryan, I'm using he, him pronouns. It's us two again today. This is part two of... Our Thanksgiving episode, if you haven't listened to part one, go do that. But uh, yeah, without a whole lot of introduction needed, let's just dive down the rabbit hole. There's a lot of stuff kind of in the subtext of the story that you can interpret from it that Americans can rightly take pride in. I mean, there's a lot of... It, it's a feel-good story. Yeah, it really is. But the important thing to realize about it is it's not necessarily 100% true. Like, yes, religious freedom... Freedom from persecution was a big aspect of it. Yes, Mayflower Compact's real. Yes, they did have, for a time, generally peaceful interactions with the indigenous people. But there's more. There's more to it that gets washed away or ignored because it doesn't fit that narrative. And perhaps the greatest distortion of the reality compared to this story is of the that last point that I made, the, the relationship with the colonists and the indigenous people of what would become the United States. And it's not lies or anything like that. It, it's more of like uh, just omission and erasure because... Yeah that part of the story doesn't feel good when we talk about it. So cherry picking too. Right. And, and and it's not like there's some big overlords in the sky being like, we will only write textbooks to say this type of thing. You know, it's, it's just human nature to want to feel good about what you did. And after so long of ignoring this history or, having the mainstream parts of society, the people that get to write the history books, not caring enough to go ask the indigenous people their half of the story, you know, that's where, after a certain long amount of time, it's like, well, this is the story I heard as a kid back in the 1950s. It's what I'm going to tell my kids. So it's what they're going to tell their kids and turtles all the way down. Mm-hmm. So, time for the uh, depressing part of the story, if you want to say that. There is some level of optimism to it that we'll get to at the end, I'll point out. But um, buckle up, kids. Trigger warning, I guess, because we're going to talk about some really gross acts of violence and genocide. So, there you go. So yeah, we already talked about Tisquantum's enslavement. That's like a first aspect 
how his how disease eradicated his people in a very similar way that a very large population of native people on the American continents were eradicated by disease. Those are fundamental parts to the indigenous story of Thanksgiving. You also have this idea that the pilgrims settled on empty land, yes, but the entire continent wasn't empty. It just happened to be this one little spot, you know. And so there's kind of, that kind of gets blown and confused together as like, the entire continent was empty, therefore it's not bad that we moved in, we being white people, moved in and stole the land from the indigenous people. Because you can't steal it if no one's there. So it th- yeah, that exactly. myth becomes kind of a thing. Um, Tisquantum and Massasoit's amicable relationship with the colonists like William Bradford and Miles Standish. That positive relationship between the two peoples can it does a whole lot to help set up this idea of like a noble savage, which is like the idea that native indigenous people are pure and uncorrupted by society and they will be there to help you, the white people, quotes, and like, you know, it. They they're willingly giving us all this stuff, which gives way to some more negative notions of white Anglo paternalism. Like, oh, we got to take care of these poor little innocent Native Americans, or they're just too stupid to know what evil is, so they're pure and. Oh, they're, they can't live in a modern society. They're trapped away in the past because modern society would just corrupt them. So it, it's these tropes that kind of all go towards erasing the diversity of Native American history and the experience of those people in reality. That's the big picture. As far as the specifics of the Thanksgiving story and what happens after the three-day party ends, we already mentioned that in 1621, the Wampanoags and the Plymouth Colony have a treaty that they work nicely together. It's mutual defense. It all works out good. They protect and trade between each other. A good example of showing the complexity of the relationship of this time is that the multiple different Native American nations, tribes in this region are all acting under, you know, they were already having relationships between themselves in the middle of doing certain things. And then basically all of a sudden these aliens come out of nowhere and start also being involved. And they get thrown into this political calculus. And so it would make sense that for the Wampanoags that have rivals to these new people came in with a bunch of fancy stuff, it'd be good to be friends with them so that way you can use our stuff to boost our own position. You know, they're making their own decisions. 
in this situation. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But then you also have the English colonists going in and uh, expanding beyond just the coast and encroaching in on these other nations that don't have these treaties of understanding and it causes people to have to move around which then makes them go into contact with other nations and things get complicated pretty fast so the first example of things getting super complicated in the region was 1636 so just over 10 years after the pilgrims show up the english settlers in the massachusetts bay area began expanding into the more interior of the region. And one of the tribes, the Pequots, were encroached on, and so they retaliated uh, by attacking British settlements and encroaching, in turn, on Wampanoag territory, which triggers that mutual defense alliance, and you got a war. And so for the next two years, the Pequot War is happening, and it's it just devastates the Pequot population, kills a bunch of them, and you can really start to see some of the really atrocious, inhumane acts of colonists with native alliances, but colonist against the indigenous people for the Pequot war the most egregious incident occurred well the most infamous I guess um, was on May 26 1637 it was known as the mystic massacre and uh, again trigger warning but uh, in this event There were colonial forces led by John Mason and John Underhill, and they surrounded a Pequot fort slash village, and they surrounded it and set it on fire, and everyone that tried to escape was then shot as they tried to escape. So they were either shot or burned alive, and around 500 Pequot civilians were killed in that incident alone. Wow, that's, that's very brutal. Yeah. And whenever you consider these are not super large populations to begin with, percentage-wise, things just start tumbling. Pequots are, for all intents and purposes, as a political entity on the map, erased. Um... The next major conflict in the region took place not long after the death of Massasoit in 1662, so just one generation removed. Massasoit's son, Wamsutta, became Sachem, and amid a disagreement over land sales, um, he ended up being arrested by the authorities at the Plymouth colony which kind of went against the treaty because wampanoags were not subject to english colonial law and so therefore they couldn't really be arrested by them but wamsetta was 
arrested and in the Pilgrim's authority, he died. It is unclear, depending on who you asked, he just got sick and died, or he was intentionally killed by the colonists. The world will never know. Not good either way. But Wham Sutta's brother, Metacomet, then becomes Sachem, and he, of course, holds this against the pilgrims in Plymouth. Um, and the relationship rapidly deteriorates. A few years later, there's rumors that Metacomet, who was called Philip by the colonists because they gave him a Christian name. Long story. But they called him Philip, yeah. but Metacomet. Um, there were rumors that got out to the authorities that he was planning some sort of war or attack against the English colonists. And then the person who gave him the tip was a Christian Indian because um, a lot of Native Americans had converted by this time and they had formed like their own separate communities from the tribal nations. So you got like three different sides to this. It gets very complicated. Like I said, um, I'll leave sources for you to in the show notes and stuff for you to look into this more. I'm just really trying to breeze through because it's a lot. But anyways, the person, the Christian Indian who gave the colonists the tip that Metacomet's about to start doing something ends up dead. Um, and so a couple of Wampanoags are put on trial for his murder and they are executed and Metacomet's not a fan of his people being subject to the British, I mean, the English colonists' legal system. And so a war indeed does happen because he's like, you had, you executed my people. It's wartime. So whether or not the rumors were true, war comes in 1675. And it becomes known as King Philip's War. And this war, what it, you know, for whatever political reasons they had, it morphs into, it was probably the last serious chance that a united indigenous native alliance had at completely expelling the European colonists from a region in the British colonies because their military sizes were still comparable. You know, they population-wise, they weren't just totally swamped out yet. Um, and the British did not have super large colonies in the region to begin with. I mean, Massachusetts isn't a large place. And Plymouth was half of Massachusetts. So, yeah. So anyways, if the war had turned out differently, it would have turned out differently. And But it goes on to become one of the bloodiest wars in American history in terms of percentage of population lost. So over the three-year war... Almost 5% of the total English population in the colonies of that area were killed. If native populations are included in the total, then about 
10% of New England's population died in the war or through starvation. In three years. Yes. For comparison, the American Revolution killed about 1% of the population of the colonies. And the Civil War, which was the deadliest war in American history, it only killed about 2% of the population. So, yeah. Over half of the English settlements in the region had been attacked by indigenous forces, with a good percentage of those being completely destroyed. Um... And then, of course, you have retaliations on the countless indigenous communities that were destroyed through the war. The war ended in 1738, whenever Metacomet was killed. In terms of some more casualty numbers here, close to 3,000 English colonists lost their lives. Plymouth specifically lost 8% of its adult male population. 2,000 native people were killed outright, 3,000 died of sickness or starvation, and another 1,000 were sold into enslavement. And like the Pequots from the previous war, several of the smaller tribes and Indian nations were effectively destroyed as political entities. And... As a result of the war, Metacomet, because he was the sachem of the Wampanoags, and he started the war, quote-unquote, they were stripped of their land rights completely. The treaty was null and void. So, yeah. Less than one generation removed of the Pilgrims, the Pilgrims have killed the Indians. So, yeah. So, this is, this is definitely the stuff we, we don't, we are not taught in school. Right, right. Um, yeah, it's, it doesn't fit in that narrative. This hostile relationship between colonists and native people continued until and then past the birth of what would become the United States, um, leading up to America's founding in our Declaration of Independence against Britain, one of our complaints is the lack of protection against the, quote, merciless Indian savages, end quote. Cool. And uh, the list of conflict goes on for centuries, and there's a whole lot of other stories in that, but I think you get the point that the relationship wasn't as amicable as Thanksgiving would make it out to be. Not for very long, at least, yeah. But I did say there was some optimism to it. I know I've just told this apocalyptic story from, you know, the indigenous people's perspective. But a lot of these tribes including the Wampanoag, while the tribes as political entity might have been destroyed back in the 1600s, the people persisted. 
They survive. They are around. That's one of the myths is that Indians stopped existing, you know, around 1900 or something. Back before, back before color was invented for your photographs, you know, um, that they just stopped existing. That is not true. They are around. There's thousands of them. They have two reservations in Massachusetts. Um, they've survived war, disease, forced assimilation, legal termination of their tribe. They've seen it all, and they're still going strong. And there's some hope in that, you know? But uh, not to say it's a good story, but that's, uh, yeah, so... Now that we are all thoroughly depressed, let's talk about some of the quirky traditions around Thanksgiving. Full oh, 180 right. here. Left turn. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I didn't want to end this on a depressing episode, so... <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, let's talk well, about... Also, Go ahead. Well, sorry, I also, I also wanted to kind of bring up the thing that I like about um, some of the Native American like reservations that are still around mm-hmm. i like how they have um i guess in a way autonomy i don't know the specifics of it but like a lot of the certain laws aren't applicable like that's why you see a lot of like casinos and stuff on on reservations right right yeah it, i think that's one of the, i think that's one of those like resiliency things it's like yes they, they come they come and lose all their money because we're allowed to hell yeah <laughs> That's like some like ultimate payback kind of stuff. Right, right. Um, yeah, no, that there is you know some legal autonomy. Uh, you know, it could be stripped depending on how the Supreme Court sees things from time to time. So that's always not yeah. a positive story, but um, it's a story for another time. So yeah, well, like I know like the Tesla dealerships, quote unquote, like. Most states have it to where you have to sell cars through a dealership. You can't sell direct to customer. Right, right. And so in some way, Tesla, I don't know if they sell cars or, or like repair cars or what through reservations. And so Yeah, like on tribal kind of lands. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, kind of an interesting, like, not loophole, I guess, but also like positive for them, I hope. Hopefully. I mean, who knows with Elon I hope, Musk, right? I hope. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, that's a, that's a whole other story, too. <laughs> Oh man! But uh, Twitter's Twitter's about to get shut down. You know, right? Future, right. It's already shut down. I'm sorry. It's right. That's, uh, what, that's, that's how you date this episode. Yeah, right. It, I, I give them like two more weeks. You know, takes well, some... corporate. Yeah, the business is shut down until Monday, or the offices are shut down. Until true, Monday, true. So. The, the, they'll wait till after the holiday. You know, <laughs> no oh, one's yeah. working this week, anyways. Yeah. Exactly. So. Anyways, back to the (laughs) fun side of Thanksgiving. Um, Plymouth Rock. You've heard of this? I have. I also, I might be uh, cutting ahead of what you're going to say, but it's actually not that cool of a rock, is it? No, it is not. (laughs) It is not. Uh, I was going to ask you to look at a picture of it, but uh, you can look up at it. And the listeners, it'll probably be like the cover photo for this episode. But 
Plymouth Rock, yeah, it's, uh, why don't you tell me what you think Plymouth Rock is? What, what have you heard? So, like, in my head, it's always this, like, you know, they landed in this, like, really rocky area, and so there's a rock, like, the size of, like, a very, like, a large, like, state, and it's, like, you know, it's, like, this is the first place we landed, so we got to commemorate it. It's this really cool, big, all this, and uh, I'm looking at it right now, and, uh, yeah. It's a rock. It's not a boulder. It's a rock. Or whatever SpongeBob said. Uh. <laughs> yes, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's right. Yeah, and it's it's in its own little like habitat. It looks like. Uh huh. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, the the story of Plymouth <laughs> that's Rock. Very sad. Like what you were saying is, uh, it's supposedly the place where Plymouth. I mean, where pilgrims first stepped foot on America in Plymouth. That's the spot they stood on this rock. Boom. America starts here. Right. Only one at a time, though. Right. It's not that big of a rock. Um, one, one at a time, please. Well, surprise. It's not true. Um, not really, anyways. Uh, the first place the pilgrims landed in what would become America was at Provincetown, which is on the tip of Cape Cod, which really mm-hmm. isn't. They stayed there for about five weeks before moving to what is now Plymouth. And so um, there's a monument there for the real first spot. But also, whenever they did arrive in the Plymouth area, the first place they came ashore was on Clark's Island, which is out in the harbor. So they landed there before they even got to the mainland. So uh, I guess Plymouth Rock would be like the third place. They've landed in America. But Which it, is probably why the rock is so pathetic. Uh, but, it, you know, it's where they it's where they landed and set up what would become Plymouth, which is, you know, where they stayed. So, all right, all yeah. right. If, you know... Mm-hmm. Uh, but if this story is to be believed, um, we know, quote-unquote, know this story, um, not because anyone in their journals back in the day said... Man, we landed on this big ass rock. It's right here, and I want everyone to know this. No, they did not care. Um, but we know this is where they landed because in 1741, a man named Thomas Vance, who was 94 years old and the son of a pilgrim who arrived in 1623, so two years after the first instant i I mean three years after um mr vance identified this boulder as the landing spot that his father supposedly told him was where they said it happened and he pointed it out because they're about to build a wharf that would destroy the rock and so he was like no don't destroy that rock that's where my daddy told me they landed back a hundred years ago and, oh my god, that's... And he's 94 back in the 1700s, so you know how that healthcare goes. But, um, yeah, he's he said, don't destroy this rock. And so they said, okay, we won't destroy this rock. We'll just build over it. Um, but we will keep it there. 
And so that's why we know it's a thing. Well, in 1774, this rock, this boulder, has become a symbol of a patriotic, distinct American identity separate from the English. Like, America was born on this rock, is the story we tell ourselves. And so, the patriotic people of Plymouth decided that they were going to move the boulder from its location down on the shore up to a more dignified location right in front of Town Hall. Um, didn't work. The boulder was too heavy, and so in the process of loading it onto a cart, they dropped it, and the rock broke into two pieces. So they just left one half there and moved the other half up to Town Hall. Uh, and so uh so the piece at town hall it stayed there until 1834 and then they moved it into a museum and the half on the beach is still there just being on the beach but in 1867 they finished making a little monument canopy to protect the rock on the beach and the other half is in the museum. So they're like, all right, this is where it's going to be. Well, no. In 1880, they decided, you know what? The rock on the beach must be lonely. Let's take the two halves and reunite them after 100 years. Oh, my God. And so they take the rock out of the... Mu- they take the half out of the museum, take it back down to the beach, to the rest of it, and they glue them back together with cement and then they chisel on the boulder the date 1620 oh i thought you were gonna say so all of these pictures that i see i thought that was half of it that had broken off but now i see where it's like glued together you can see the line in the cement on the boulder of where the two halves Mm -hmm. fell apart um But yeah, they were reunited in 1880, and the only other time that they've moved since then was in the 1920s, whenever they were redoing the whole waterfront of that area to make it into more of like a park area, and that's where they built the new exhibit, I mean, not exhibit, the new monument canopy that is over it today, and also in the process of that, they moved the boulder back down to sea level to where it originally would have been. And that is where it rests today. It has not moved since. And it is protected by this canopy. Um, around a, a million people go look at this rock every year. I would, I would brave a guess that most of the people are there to see the rock but also they're really there to go see a replica of the mayflower that is like a thousand feet sitting to the side of it um but regardless you know it it, it's you know it it still its status is uh declined needless to say historically um you know, there, there are these huge ceremonies that took place um, in 1720 and 1820 um, for their 100 and 
200 year anniversaries. You know, they had a lot of politicians go speak because this is where America was born. Um, there weren't really any big national celebrations in 2020 for the 400 year anniversary. I mean, yeah, there is a pandemic, but also, uh, it's a rock. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. And yes, it is not as bold. Er, you see what I did there? Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's not as big as it used to be. I will give it that. Um, originally, the boulder was estimated to be four to six tons. But over the hundreds of years that people have known about it, um, only about a th people would be chip off pieces of it to take as souvenirs to be like, I have a piece of Plymouth Rock. And so only about a third of the original 200,000 pounds remains, which is why it kind of looks pathetic just sitting down there. Um, yeah, it's, it definitely it definitely looks like it's been adulterated. Right. Um, so. so yeah, it, it's either a very sad rock or we've locked it away secretly to protect ourselves back behind this cage, you know, <laughs> appease the yes. rock. Yes, it definitely looks like it's a, like, keep your hands out of this, it will bite if you're not careful. Kind of, kind of. Yeah, it, it's, it's like submerged down like lions are at the zoo, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, that's Plymouth Rock. <laughs> I just think it's a, I mean, it's a rock, right? <laughs> it's a rock that people have thought for a very long time is super important. And... It got moved around, but it's a rock. So, mm -hmm. um, another quirky Thanksgiving thing: turkey pardons. Oh yes, you, like oh. what's up with that? It, it's probably the biggest news that happens every Thanksgiving. You know, it's a turkey gets pardoned. Hell yeah, brother! I want to be a turkey. You know. What kind of what kind of crimes did that turkey commit? Right, it's like why is this a thing? It, this is the, what I meant by like explaining to aliens. Oh yeah, the president of the United States, the most powerful country in the free world. Yeah, every year we we pardon turkey for its crimes, and then we go eat its brethren in mass, and it's a communal celebration. You know. <laughs> yep. We. Yep. We spare this turkey of all its sins. It is the turkey Christ. You know, something along those lines. Uh, but anyways, uh, President Lincoln, again, features in the Thanksgiving story. Uh, he is credited with pardoning the first turkey back in 1863. Um, but... The turkey that he quote-unquote pardoned, uh, it was not a Thanksgiving turkey. It instead was given as a gift to be eaten around Christmas. But the president's son, Tad, he began treating the turkey as a pet. And 
even like trained him to follow him around the White House and like do tricks and stuff. And so whenever Christmas time comes around and President Lincoln's like, Tad, we're gonna have to gonna have to kill this turkey. We gotta eat it. And Tad was like, No, I don't wanna kill the turkey. And Abraham Lincoln, he was he was real sweet on his kids. So he was like, Alright, fine, we'll let the turkey live. So that that that's the first turkey pardoning. But turkeys at the White House, they were not pardoned um, until much more recently. Even turkeys, like, appearing at the White House in general, outside of, like, a few random incidences, it, it escalated dramatically in the 1870s whenever there was a man, a turkey farmer, named Horace Vose, and he began sending already killed turkeys. He, he began sending dressed turkeys to the president every year for Thanksgiving. And it kind of like became a tradition slash habit to where Farmer Vose was the guy that fed the president his Thanksgiving turkey. That was just the thing. And yeah. he did it up until 1913. I mean, he did it for a long time. And he got wow. to brag about my turkeys are so good that the president eats them, you know. Well, he died in like a month after Thanksgiving in 1913. And so after that, you get literally dozens of turkeys being sent to the White House every year because everyone wants to replace him and be the turkey guy for the president. Um... So yeah, chaos. Literally dozens of turkeys get showed up every year, mailed in, all over the country. Well, 1947, the National Turkey Federation, which is a group that exists apparently, they end up becoming the people that to this day are the ones that send the president his turkeys. And the first time... One of these turkeys sent by the Turkey Federation was intentionally spared, was in 1963 by JFK. But, af and, but even then, it was still irregular. Like, it wasn't normal to not eat the turkeys that the National Turkey Federation sent you. Um, until Ronald Reagan. And since Ronald Reagan, turkeys have been spared. But it wasn't until Papa Bush, H.W. Bush, that the word pardoned got used. So it wasn't until like the 1990s. And then it wasn't until 1999 that since that point, all turkeys that have been sent to the president on Thanksgiving have gone through a formal pardon processing. They got the paperwork and everything. Um, so, yeah, that's turkey pardoning. There's two of them, the, how the process goes. There's two turkeys that get sent every year. Only one of them is actually pardoned. Both are sp spared, but only one is officially pardoned. Um, the other is there in case, like, one of them gets sick stage fright the night before. I don't know what's going <laughs> through a turkey's <laughs> mind. Um, but they are 
given cute names by, um, usually they have like a bunch of school kids from somewhere pick out the names or like they do an online vote. Um, so yeah, like there's, uh, you have Harry and Jerry, you have Liberty and Freedom, Biscuits and Gravy, Marshmallow and Yam, um, Cobbler and Gobbler, you know, <laughs> that those are probably my favorite, Cobbler and Gobbler. Um, yes, I like, I, like, I, like, I like Gobbler. Uh, Drumstick was one of them. Okay. That's a little, a little patronizing. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it, it it's fun. It's fun. Um, just a cute little thing that happens, right? Unfortunately, yeah. because we can't have nice things, uh, you know, these turkeys, they get to stay the night at the White House and then they go and do the ceremony. But because they are domestic farm turkeys, they don't live super long to begin with. So it is very rare for this pardoned turkey to live to see the next Thanksgiving. But those numbers are improving over time. They're starting to take better care of them. Um, but yeah, the, uh, I think some of them have gone to like live at Disney World after and stuff. So they get a nice life. But it's not a long one as a turkey, so. Oh, very sad. But yeah, that that's why we do that. Hmm. And uh, the last quirky Thanksgiving thing that we'll talk about that happens every Thanksgiving, it's uh, football. You know, oh yeah, football Thanksgiving, a match made in heaven, right? What could be more American? Exactly. And, like, they they truly were made to go together because the first Thanksgiving game of collegiate football took place in Philadelphia two weeks after the first game of football ever, you know? And we talked about wow. that first game in a previous episode. Go listen. Um, but, like, yeah, same year, two weeks later, boom, they're doing a Thanksgiving game. So... They're, they just, it just works out. The Thanksgiving weekend, it lines up perfectly with the end of the collegiate football regular season. And so a bunch of schools decided that they had put their major rivalry games on the day of or that weekend because it'd be the last big game of the year. They didn't really have you know, the college football playoff or anything like that back in the day. Yeah. So you get the big rivalry games like the Iron Bowl, the Bedlam Series, um, UT Texas versus Texas A&M. That was on Thanksgiving. Um, clean, old-fashioned hate, which is the name of the rivalry between Georgia and Georgia Tech. Um, wow. And, and then you have the Michigan-Ohio State game, which is just known as the game. So, like, some of the biggest games in college football were held on that weekend. The Army-Navy game was another big game, but as the college football 
world got even bigger, more games were added, you now have bowl games going out the wazoo, you know, it's you're playing teams across the country. Schedule got longer and more complicated, so the Army-Navy game moved their game a couple weeks later, so that way they would have the they would be able to maintain the status as the final game of the college football regular season. And a bunch of other schools, you know, the rivalries have since ended, as in the case of Texas versus Texas A&M, though that's coming back. It's coming back. It's coming back, baby. Uh, and but, uh, but yeah, a lot of those series are either no longer existing or they've moved to other times of the year because Thanksgiving isn't necessarily the last game that they play anymore. Yeah, exactly. It's and, more of a commemorative thing. Sometimes. Right, right. So yeah, but uh, the the combination of college football and high school football games around Thanksgiving is actually widely credited with popularizing the holiday in the southern U.S. because the ex-Confederacy states, they didn't like that Lincoln came up with the idea of the holiday, so they kind of refused to celebrate it there for a while. But then they're like, hey, we'll we'll celebrate it if we can do this football thing. So there you go. Cool. But that's college. The NFL also has a tradition of Thanksgiving Day games. In fact, they've probably even overshadowed the college game since most of the college games are moved to the weekend after now. But the NFL has a tradition of Thanksgiving Day games. In the modern era, there's three NFL games on that day. The third game's a relatively recent thing, but there's always been a 12.30 and a 3 o'clock game that are played on Thanksgiving. And two teams will always play on Thanksgiving. Do you know who they are? Oh, God. I am not that guy. Oh, I'm sorry. You, you got to know. I did not know. You're, you're from Texas, man. You got to know one team that always plays on Thanksgiving. I couldn't tell you. Oh, how about them Cowboys, son? Oh, I, I don't think I can say that name. I I don't know. I can't get that name. <laughs> I, they, yeah, in, <laughs> no, I mean. in our part of the world, that's that's one thing you can take for certain is, you know, death, taxes, and the Cowboys will play on Thanksgiving. Uh-uh, okay. Um, they have hosted a Thanksgiving Day game every year since 1966, with a couple of exceptions in the 70s. But, yeah, that that is what they do. The other team that has played actually has an even longer streak of Thanksgiving Day games going all the way back to 1934. And those are the Detroit Lions. And Detroit always gets... I'm pretty sure how it works out is Detroit always gets the early game. And the Cowboys always get the afternoon game. And then mm-hmm. now there's a evening game that randos play. But um, so, yeah, that's football and Thanksgiving. 
yeah, that's the that's the story of Thanksgiving and all the traditions and all that jazz. Long and detailed, but lots lots to go through. Right, right. And uh, so, 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 what are your thoughts that you're gonna take away from this, or any thoughts that you have about anything we've discussed? So, the first section of the United States, or I guess, like the United States history side of it, I feel like was a good refresher. I definitely had not heard the details of all of the like Native American wars and all of that. Like, obviously, I I knew that was in general a thing, but like learning the specifics was was pretty interesting. And then always the fun quirky little stuff, you know. So, like, oh, overall, all, all three all three sections I think had their good had their really good points. Yeah, and I mean, and also and also the random coincidence of. Yeah, it's a holiday now. Okay, yeah, well, th- yeah, that rock looks good. <laughs> yeah. And I guess it should be around fall. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I, my main thought is, I, I think, you know, our nation, our cultural thoughts about things and our view on American history, it's evolving over time. Um, I mean, especially around the relationship with the native americans that's a we're really refocusing that which i think is beneficial and so in a sense i think it's there's a positive side that thanksgiving you know people celebrate it they're not really celebrating the pilgrims i mean yeah that's what the holiday you know is about, but that's not why people celebrate it. It's kind of lost its focus as it's become commercialized. So, oh yeah, I, I, oh, for sure. I, I think you know the because I mean, like Thanksgiving, you know, it's it. If you remove the historical context, whatever, right? Then it's a good holiday. You know, it. Mm-hmm. We should have mm-hmm. a Thanksgiving, and so yeah, I mean it that's what you get there there's some dialogue in the native and indigenous communities over whether or not the holiday should continue to exist i'm not an expert you know on or really able to give my influence on that but it's you know it thanksgiving because it is fairly removed from the historical context and removed from it is a decent holiday uh there's there let's just say there's a lot less effort behind canceling thanksgiving or whatever you want to say versus like columbus day or something so yeah yeah no i i feel like i haven't really heard too much pushback from from thanksgiving overall yeah and i know some people in the indigenous community um they they see it more as like uh, observing a national day of mourning for all the people that have passed away because of genocide and stuff. But um, mm-hmm. but there's still you know a gathering of family and stuff that should be celebrated. Um, but yeah, I, I'm not an expert and but yeah, that's kind of the I I think the most important takeaway is like 
And like the takeaway of general gist of this show, right? If this show had ethos is like embracing the nuance of the situation, especially on issues like this that have a lot of erased parts because the people have been marginalized historically. So yeah. Um, yeah, it kind of helps shed light onto the less spoken about stories. That's why it's literally the name of the podcast. Is it's not surface level. It's not. Yeah, we're necessarily everything that you've already heard. We're spelunking, man. So like, <laughs> yeah, it it's it's a first step in fixing all these problems that we have as a society around these super complex relationships and stuff is you got to be able to talk about what happened, you know, and a lot of people don't have that even just base information. So, yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, that's, that's your step to save the world, I guess, is talk to people. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, yeah, we have solved the world's problems, Ryan. We have done it. Um, yes. Easy as but yeah, uh, I hope y'all enjoyed learning new things today. Uh, happy Thanksgiving if you're celebrating, and hopefully you're gathered with like your friends and family, and you get to embrace the holiday like that. Um, I'll go ahead and close this out. Our music is by Mountaineer. You can find their stuff and more on Upbeat.io. In keeping with the theme of this episode and like our acknowledgement, uh, as always, we like to acknowledge that we are recording this on land that rightfully belongs to the Kiowa, Comanche, Tonkawa, and other indigenous peoples. If you have any questions, suggestions for future episodes, or you just want to say hi, you can reach out to us at historyspelunkers at gmail.com that's history s-p-e-l-u-n-k-e-r-s thanks again for listening happy thanksgiving guys till next time bye-bye See you then.